But I think the approach of that self-actualization, that full uh, embodiment of the image of God within ourselves is when we are most richly engaged in that spiritual community with the specific emphasis toward the spiritual, that we lean into church. And I don't say church as an institution. I say church as the body, that we lean into church with the full interest of that, of commitment in order to find that, to find that sense of connection. So we, we give our lives over to the work of the body because we recognize that the body is actually the fuller version of ourselves. Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byron. We're glad you're with us. So, Part of our community, so to speak. Yes, you are part of our community. And today we will be talking about you. Just kidding. We'll be talking about the concept in a theological Christian sense about community. Um, I have this little flyer here from chapel service today because it was so fortuitous that we would be singing Teze Worship. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Teze is a town in France uh, from which originated this worship community, an intentional community. They live together. Monastery, kind of. Yeah, but there, there are, um, there's a brotherhood who does stay there. Mm-hmm. And then thousands of people from all over the world who come to stay for shorter be- periods of time. Right. And one of the focal points of their service of their time together in community is worship through song. Um, They've got like five services a day or something. Something, yeah, something like that. And prayer, of which worship is a part, worship through song is a part, is a very focal, it is sort of the seminal aspect of this community. It is um, more than doing justice or other things. Prayer is kind of what grounds them as having a purpose. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the the founder of the community, Brother Roger, he has this quote, and the quote was printed on the bulletin for today, so I wanted to read it here. He says, Since my youth, I think that I have never lost the intuition that community life could be a sign that God is love and love alone. Gradually, the conviction took shape in me that it was essential to create a community, determined to give their whole life and who would always try to understand one another and be reconciled, a community where kindness of heart and simplicity would be at the center of everything. And I just think that's a beautiful quote, but it's a reflection of what I think is a very Christian conviction. And so I'm curious in our conversation today for us to define what is Christian community is it necessary, and if so, how? And what does it look like manifest in our world? Hmm. So I have many thoughts. I obviously am very passionate about community, particularly yeah. intentional community. Um, I'm taking a course right now on intentional community. But before I talk about all of my thoughts and experience, let's put a definition down on the table, so we're working with something consistent here. When we talk about community. Koinonia? 
ecclesia? Yeah, so koinonia being the sense of commonness, of collectivity, sharing things in common. Ecclesia being the church, the body that comes together. The group. The groupy group. Is that how we would define community? Is that, you know, the term body of Christ is another term that comes up scripturally. I think even to the beginning of Genesis, Adam was not meant to be alone. There's this sense of the imperative for humanity to be socially bound. Well, even the the difference between how Israel is talked about, the, the person, the tribe, mm. the nation, like it's all kind of the same thing. Like we are each other in mm. some in some way. We mm. are inextricably linked. I think that's a huge core of what community what is the basis of community. You 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 know, you think of the construction of the self and you start with this depending on, you know, one western framework. Uh, you start with the self, and then immediately around that, you have, you know, what constructs the self is essentially larger and larger concentric circles of community. So mm-hmm. you have your immediate family. You have uh, your extended family. You have friends and people in your region. You have, you know, and, and you get broader and broader. And so in that kind of framework, you could say that the self is the smallest, or the individual maybe, is the smallest unit of community. But mm. I think you you need at least two. Unless you're God, then you are your own community. <laughs> a Trinitarian dance, perichoresis. Yeah. I mean, I would maybe go as far as to say, like, part of what makes us in the image of God is the relationality, mm-hmm. the capacity for community. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm a little over this um kind of christian bent and it's not just a modern christian bent this idea of like what about the image is unique to humans mm-hmm. uh, like i'm i'm a, i'm a little done arguing for human supremacy yeah um because creation is in community with itself mm-hmm. and arguably it is in better community with itself predatory symbiotic uh, whatever as it might be yeah, I agree with you on that. So those are some thoughts that I have about community. You could go the direction of rules. Community is not a people, but an agreed upon. I mean, it could be a people, but it's a people bound by an agreed upon rule set or a practice. Yeah, practice. I think if we extend extend beyond rules, there's a sense of... Well, I think the rule of Benedict when I say rules. Oh, I see. Because also yeah. I hate rules. A certain order. <laughs> which you know. Right. Um, it's almost a covenant. Right. A sense of shared agreement and behind that and i think this is the most important part while it is helpful to have organization behind the organization behind that rule is a value Mm, and a sense of commitment so we are drawn to something and that something could be as simple as community for community's sake and in that there's a sense of okay if we are drawn to this what then is our obligation to one another in order to do community? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the structure comes in to have some sort of organization for communal thriving. But there has to be some drive. Now, for communities to thrive and be sustainable, typically this, and this is, um, there's a sociologist, I think her name is Mary Cantor, 
that I was just reading. Cantor. I barely <laughs> even know her. Okay. <laughs> who she's a sociologist from Harvard, economist, mm. who studied a series of twenty some communes and was trying to see what led them to be sustainable and unsustainable. And oftentimes there was a stricter imposition of rules that led to a greater sustainability of these communities, which was odd. But I think the important part of that was the high level of commitment that it took for you to be in the community in the first place. Mm. If you are, because none of these were through coercion, they're not cults. Um, If you're aware of the community ethic, the rule by which the community operates, and you say, that's what I want, if the cost of entry is higher, your commitment from inception is far greater. Mm. And your willingness to stand through a great amount of trial is also higher. So having some deeper sense of purpose to motivate that interest in joining is often very important. And this is typically why religious communities will often do better than non-religious communities, even though in the history of intentional communities, very often religious communities also fall apart. Now, I would argue that you shouldn't judge a community's success versus failure based on if it doesn't last forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, what lasts forever? You know, eventually something is going to close. And so in the sense of a life well lived, you live, you, you're born, you die. Does that mean you failed as a human being? No, <laughs> right? So I think we should hold communities to a similar standard. And it's not about how long you lived, but about how well you lived. So, yeah, I mean, one interesting aspect there. So I'm taking this class on Kagawa and he's big on evolution and there. Like evolution is an is amoral. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no intentionality or will behind it. Um, you you get, you know, homologous evolution is or convergent evolution is when uh, two branches of evolution will converge on a similar solution. So like the fusiform or uh, streamlined water shape, torpedo shape of sharks and dolphins, mm-hmm. like they have arrived at the, at the same conclusion evolutionarily because that's the best thing for that environment. Works for me. But the way that evolution works is that if the environment changes, the thing itself will either change or die. Mm. And it's not a moralistic or, I mean, it doesn't say anything about the the function or, or goodness or whatever of the creature that it didn't work, it didn't survive or thrive when the environment changed. Yeah. So, you know, so... How versatile do you need to be? Right. If if a community is held together by a strict sense of, you know, values and rules and whatever, then it kind of actually makes sense for something to, you know, that's hard to hold in tension. To be strict and, and separate from the world doesn't guarantee sustainability. There's a term yeah, that you use just there, uh, separate from the world. Now, I think this is an important thing to think about with community because I don't think inherently a community needs to be physically or even culturally separate from the world. I think to be a body that is called a community, it does in some way in its identity need to be separate from the world. Separate or distinct. Those are maybe two. Sure. Distinct. It needs to be distinct from the world around itself um, based on if nothing else, just the sense of communal identity. Mm-hmm. We belong to this community, therefore we are not 
not this community. I mean, everything else that is not belonging to this community doesn't carry the name of the community. Right. I'm thinking like Lord of the Rings fans, for instance. Sure, sure. In order to be a Lord of the Rings fan, you don't need to give up anything. You just need to claim it. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the unifying factor. And so there's no separateness, but there is a distinction. So then when we think about a Christian notion of community, is that does that count? Can Lord of the Rings fandom be community? Or is there something more that's needed for it to be a Christian community? Obviously, having a shared faith, but is, is shared faith enough? Or does there need to be something about our lived praxis? I, I think there needs to be something about something practical. Well, I mean, multiple layers, right? Like we can recognize the body of Christ as a community because it has been given a certain identity by God. But I would say that we are failing as the body of Christ because that body actually has a very specific role that it was assigned and it is failing to live into that at least fully right mm-hmm. different cells parts of the body are doing things but as a whole the body of Christ is meant to be embodying the work of Christ in the world bringing the healing of God bringing about God's kingdom of shalom and in the ways that we are not reaching that we are failing to be that community to live into its identity. Yeah, that sounds like what I think it's Augustine says about um, performative versus positional authority, mm. that you're not a leader because you, well, I mean, depending on how you see it, but you're, you're not a leader because you have been positioned in the, in the role of a leader, right? You are a leader when you perform the tasks of a leader. Mm-hmm. So there's a... You said positional and then... Performative. Performative. So there's a positional authority that the church has as the body. It cannot renounce that identity because it's not ours to do. Right. But in failing to live into the performative authority, we are... There's a disparity between those authorities, and in many ways we are unauthorized, would you say? Yeah, I don't know. We're a body with an autoimmune disorder. Mm Mm-hmm. Or with an identity crisis. That's I like that. Yeah, identity crisis. I think that's a good term. Which to is use just for it. which is what Dr. Hines is using to describe adolescence. Mm. Well, that's encouraging. Because <laughs> it grows up. Maybe. Well, Unless the other the, the other thing is that Christianity only gets us as far as adolescence. Mm. <laughs> which which you know this is this is the reason why I am pursuing youth ministry is because I think adolescence is you know you can you can mature. Uh, you know, but that doesn't take you out of adolescence. Adolescence is the liminal kind of uh, continual assessment stage. Mm. And I think we we are supposed to continually, cyclically return back to that. That's fascinating. But anyway. To that idea of identity formation that is happening in that liminal stage mm-hmm. of adolescence, in many ways that is peaked in that stage, Uh Back to something that you said earlier about the identity of self, of these concentric circles, mm. that there's a self within oneself and then the next circle out being one's immediate family and broader and broader levels of community that reflect uh, various tiers of our identity, you could say, right? Mm-hmm. Many philosophers would argue that there's actually no self apart from relationship. So the idea of it, like, so... Um, Descartes will say, 
cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, but, um, and I forget who was it, Popper, there was some... Dobitu er ergo cognito ergo sum. <laughs> I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. People always forget the first one. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I get it. But but the idea still that, that identity is when we cannot trust anything else, the one thing that we can trust is our doubt and our, and our self-critique and therefore our thinking and therefore our reality. But other philosophers, and I'm forgetting one guy specifically, critiques Descartes because you cannot actually have your thoughts in the way that you think, the, the paradigm in which you think without your lived experience in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting then to look at case studies of, for example, the boy who was raised by wolves. Mm -hmm. And Has that ever actually, that's actually happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a French okay. documentary about it. I thought that was just a, a like, myth narrative. Now, I, I watched the documentary and I believe it, but I don't know. Sucker. I guess anything, yeah, anything can be faked. <laughs> sure. No, okay. I but, mean, it's, it's, a, it's a trope. It's a narrative. It makes sense that it could have happened. Yeah. So his, for one had no human language. Mm -hmm. You know, he communicated in sounds like wolves. And the way that he engaged the world was like a wolf crawling around on all fours and in engaging in social circles of wolves. And, um, you know, everything that we think about what it means to be human other than the physical human body and the human soul were not contained within this person. And so you can make the argument that the self is the body or the self is the soul, but in that case, you know, a dead person, who many of us would refer to as a corpse as opposed to a person, and when we talk about that person, we're actually talking in memory of as opposed to that person still retaining their personhood. Mm -hmm. Or the idea of the soul being the self. Um, but... What I think is, if we engage this idea of relationality being transformative and identity-giving, I think it's very important to how we understand the idea of self-actualization, how we, how we become our fullest self. Now, I would say that the first relationship, the most intimate relationship, is actually God to us, and that no matter how isolated we are from other people, that relationship still exists, and therefore we're still defined in relationship. More than your mother to you? More than your mother to you, yeah. That that God is actually within you. And and that is a communication. Can you be in relationship with something you don't recognize? I think so. I think so, because we exist in a world where many people are not aware of the structural evils of racism. And you operate in the world with a subconscious recognition of it, without a conscious recognition. Yeah, I... I think you can't have any moral culpability. You can have social, like, responsibility for something that you don't recognize. But morally, I don't think someone could be held culpable for what they don't know. Sure. Um, but this isn't a moral well, question at this point. It's an existential one. And if we take that idea, then, of recognizing how paramount relationship is to identity, then... We look to the Christian body as 
the fullest practical manifestation of that actualization in this human material world. That we have the ability to engage in relationship with one another, not only as separate individuals, but as one shared entity within itself. And so I think more so than any other relationship, one that is rooted in a shared spiritual identity, and I'll say ontological identity, that is to say the very essence of who we are is as a body. Um, I think there was a previous episode, can't remember which one right now, where I was talking about how the body of Christ is not just a symbol, but an actual ontological identity. And appealing back to that idea, there is something spiritually within us that is not whole until we are in relationship as that body. And that motivates then the drive within us toward community. When people talk, and this is, you know, a problematic and, and misused idea, but the idea of having a God-shaped hole within ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think you could say that we have a body of Christ-shaped void within ourselves as well in the sense that we recognize that we are a puzzle piece without the rest of the puzzle. And so there's this yearning that may not always lead to the appropriate end that we we pursue that in ways that is actually not fulfilling and i would say even the idea of family of intimate relationships of community in a secular sense now i do want to be careful and say that what i'm speaking to is something that i do not think that anyone has ever fully attained and that this is all on a spectrum Um, because again in my idea we don't ever achieve perfection on this life. I know we have differing ideas of that. But I think the approach of that self-actualization, that full uh, embodiment of the image of God within ourselves is when we are most richly engaged in that spiritual community with the specific emphasis toward the spiritual. That we lean into church. And I don't say church as an institution. I say church as the body. That we lean into church with the full interest of that, of commitment in order to find that, to find that sense of connection. So we, we give our lives over to the work of the body because we recognize that the body is actually the fuller version of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I'm curious what that has to do with imageness and, and how Christ fits into that. Right? Like if it's f- you're, you're pointing towards something that is not complete until it involves every single person and potentially all of creation. Yeah, yeah. And and that's in many ways you could say disappointing because what about all the people who've already died? What about the people who haven't yet been born? If they're also part of the body of Christ, can the body of Christ ever fully be assembled? And again, I would say no, not on this side. But I do think that as the cells come together, that it approaches. It's it's moving in the direction of that fulfillment. And we sense that. There is something really powerful when we are in church together, worshiping in one voice. Again, talking about Teze, when we were there together in France, in Teze, mm-hmm. that was one of the most profound spiritual experiences that I've had. I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. being in a room of thousands of people who are sharing in one voice, singing praise together, that was deeply moving in my spirit. And when I've been engaged in the work of justice, because again, the work of justice is the work of the body of Christ, when particularly when it is engaged with the awareness of how that justice fits into the love and work of Christ, 
But I would say even without that awareness, there's still the subconscious knowing, the, the deeply embodied knowing of the rightness that draws us toward justice work. In that sense of accomplishment and working together, there is fulfillment. It is not perfect fulfillment, but is approximating, is moving towards. So does that answer your question? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> it was good stuff, but, um, well, the, that, that idea of, um, I don't think death is any hindrance to the wholeness of the body, right? I'm losing cells all the time and I'm gaining new cells all the time. I'm still a body, um, arguably a perfect body, um, in some ways, I, a whole body at least, mm-hmm. um, you know, and if God is the God of uh, well, Jesus says God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Um, and that's mm. an, that's an interesting negative because God is not this thing. But but the solution and, and all of what that means, of course, is that everyone, to some extent, is alive and death is no hindrance. Yeah, so death yeah. is just not a thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like saying God can't hold a burrito too hot for God to eat or whatever. Um, <laughs> like... Or saying, like, there's no square that has five sides. It's like a useless... To, to say that, like, God is not the God of the dead is is irrelevant because... <laughs> it's just a matter of definition. Right. Because um, if God is the God of all and God is not the God of the dead, then nobody is dead. Right. Um, and so to that extent, right, the body... And, and the, the body... Uh, this is kind of a physical metaphor or a, a physical thing to be kind of talking about, but we have a great cloud of witnesses mm. and they are, they've just moved on to the, the spiritual or potentially like conscience side of whatever the church is. Mm. The saints, as we understand them are still part of the body. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just conscience. Um, my sort of question is, is to like, so there's a, I consider it a heresy. Um, <laughs> That's relatively common with no. In this one, like I consider it a heresy. Oh, in a, okay. In like it, it's something that ruffles your feathers. I mean, it's more than ruffling my feathers. It's like it's fundamentally uh, discounting some important aspect of how God operates. Wow. Yeah. Um, which is how I define. We're all on the edge of our seats now. Heresy. Tell us, Byron, what is this heresy? Well, thanks for building it up so much. No, just this idea that Adam and Eve were created as this, like, genderless being. Um, mm. And that that Adam, humanity, was this genderless being until it became Ish and Isha, man and woman. And so there's just this kind of, like, shitty idea that uh, the imageness of God is only found in community, specifically heterosexual marriage community. Um that's a small community of two. The reason that's a heresy is because Christ never got married. And so Christ, like if, if a certain type of community is essential for God imageness, then that excludes certain types of people. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah. Cause I, what I hear in this and I appreciate what I'm hearing is the, uh, push away from normalizing a 
certain expectation of heterosexual marriage as this necessity. Or marriage at all. Or marriage at all, but specifically in this context of Isha and Isha coming together, of, of heterosexual marriage uh, being the point in which the body of Christ is made whole, or right. the, the image of God is made whole. Right. Um, but I would argue that it doesn't have to be viewed that way because, again, presumably they didn't have a priest in the garden <laughs> or anyone to marry them or any concept, any social construct of marriage. They just were, and it happened to be a sexual union because they had kids. But what was marriage at that point? I mean, well, you know, when the did social... they have kids? Sure, yeah, even at what point did they even have kids, right? So um, I would say that, yes, the image of God is not complete without all genders and without all people. And so Jesus in his ministry, if he did not have women in his group, it would have been a very disembodied community. Mm-hmm. It would be very fragmented. It, it wouldn't reflect the depth and breadth of God's image. I don't think it has to be sexual union. I don't think it has to be marriage, but I do think that women, men, and all other genders need to be a part of that image that you are not complete as just man, just woman, even just non-binary. Yeah. I mean, I think this begs the question of like what what counts as community. Yay. <laughs> um and the the problem is a certain type of exclusivity, but you also debatably need a certain type of exclusivity. Yeah. You know, you're you're talking a very convenient type of community that is non-opt-outable of you mean the image of God? Yeah. Um but there is there is an opting in when we when we perform. Yeah, participate. Yeah. Yeah. Um but I would be interested in well, so for, so first of, I mean, yeah. What do we what do we do with exclusivity in community? But to finish kind of this image, um, part part of the idea I think has to do with what type of community was Jesus in? Um, right. Jesus was in a theoretical way, and and maybe more practically than any other human possible, as also conveniently God. Mm-hmm. Um, in connection with people beyond his group of 12, 24, whatever. Sure, yeah. You know, in, in a similar way that, like, Jesus could not have actually been all things in order to validate it Nazianza style, mm. the community of, like, Christ's close circle of friends could not have been every type of person in humanity. Right? Like, yeah. to say that it had to include women, otherwise it would have been incomplete, well, that... Yes, uh, totally. And I'm just curious what then you do with the slippery slope of like all types of differences. Um, you know, did did Christ have someone in his group that had Alzheimer's? Sure. You yeah. know, or, you know, who was uh, any of these unique billions of human possible experiences and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um and I'm not saying that's that's a problem necessarily. It's just a it's a very fascinating point. Resulting kind sure. of question. And so what what type of community then stands in this divinization, almost, this theosizing of like the image of God 
and and the role of what community is in that. Um, I don't know if that's a really clear question. No, can you try saying that again? <laughs> um, in a similar way that Nazianzus or Bart or whatever try to articulate a transformation of God's humanity to to our humanity through the incarnation, right? Like humanity is, is redeemed, divinized, whatever, because of Christ. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're doing a similar thing by talking about the body of Christ, which is the community mm-hmm. of the church or creation or whatever. Um that that's part of what makes it like holy or or divine or god oriented or something um that wasn't any clearer i can i can start to respond and then you can tell me if i'm going way off the rails <laughs> sure we see something in god's character this pattern that i've noticed that i think is actually really beautiful that god first creates the most exclusive and then through that exclusivity opens it up to a universal inclusivity. And the exclusive is at first establishing the intimacy and the potency, and then from having established that, it becomes then universally accessible. So we see first Abraham, one person who is chosen to be the father of many nations. And then through that, we get the people of Israel, one people group that is God's people at least from the Jewish perspective. And then from that, it becomes universally open to all people. But the reason that was important is because then it's not this willy-nilly notion of whoever you are, whatever you do, everything is all okay where, where it's not specified or understood for its uniqueness, but rather saying, I know you and I specifically chose you And in that intimacy, I will then expand that to say, all of you now, there is a relationship of intimacy and exclusivity that has been defined. You can all fit into it now. And I think similar we see with Jesus, God entered into the world as one person. And that image is held uniquely, exclusively in that one person. Mm -hmm. And then after his resurrection, there is this appointing, this commissioning where now everyone has the capacity to be a part of that one person, that unique form of God in humanness. Right. And that we cannot do that alone, but together, together we can be the body of Christ that holds God's essence, that holds God's spirit within us. And that's not to say that we are not each individually a temple of the spirit, but there is something unique of the coming together of an entire body that holds God in a different way. Does that feel at all close to your question? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I was just wanting to caution the the idea of what happens when we are not the full community. Mm-hmm. You know, our, and and it's it's not a huge problem, right? Um, queer Christian ethicist uh, Robin Espinoza 
uh, says, we are not yet queer. Mm. And that one's not so hard to wrap our heads around. Queerness is this thing that's always, like, to some extent, kind of elusive. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, f- for for justice reasons and and what it is that Gayatri Spivak talks about in terms of strategic essentialism, uh, like we we've agreed upon uh, certain uh, a certain unity, a certain conformity, right? Like 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 so, women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, maybe I, maybe I should use something that I actually am. Um, so like queer rights, mm-hmm. like the tying of LGBT, uh, LGBT together and all the QIA, whatever. Um, that's a strategic essentialism. There's very, there's very little in common when it mm-hmm. comes down to it between LGB and T. Um, there's not even a, you know, it's not the same thing to talk about by uh, rights and like gay rights and mm-hmm. lesbian rights, like these are all different things. But we, we, in community, opt to put on a mask mm-hmm. of uniformity, of unity, or of something, so that we can be strategic in getting rights, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, that's fascinating. This is going to veer a little away from our topic of community, but I would say that all of the identities that make up what we consider the queer community were already categorized as other. That the hegemony of cis straightness that says this is what it is to be human mm-hmm. and all else is not human or not moral or otherwise not right. Mm-hmm. That categorization is a binary. It's always been a binary. And the way that it, in or out, in or out, exactly, exactly. And so there already was an out. Now, whether the various groups within the out recognize their power together in resistance to what I'll call empire, right? That is up for them and their work. And I think honestly, that kind of coalition building is hugely powerful in resisting uh, hegemony. But. Right it was already created. They were already otherized. And in that sense, already shared some semblance of the same marginalization. Now, obviously, it looks different for different communities, but the in and out is a binary that was already created. Yeah, I think this is less about in and out, right? Like, on that sense, like, it... it uh, yeah, that's a, that's a complication that I think misses the... Right, because then... Technically, if you take that really far, then there's very, very few people on the in, actually. Who are universally in, yeah. But, right. but you can be in in some ways and out right. in other ways. And in that way, often those people are most desperate to cling to their ins. Yeah, or it's just comfortable or easy to cling to their ins. Um, well, I, am... I do. Th- yeah, I do think there is a desperation there often uh, because because you recognize the weight of injustice that you face. And, you know, that's where we get white feminism. That's where we get black patriarchy and racism, sexism within the queer community. Sure. I, I think it's a little moralizing to call it desperate. I don't know. At least in myself, like, I I know that I even actively participate in in-group empire-style stuff 
but through the sacrament of my one outness, mm-hmm. um, that's, I mean, I am accused of clinging to that more often than not. Mm. Um, whether I am or not is, is debatable. Um, in, in many ways, you know, I, I do cling to that outness as my avenue to all of the other outs who mm. are to some extent in, in, in God's majority, mm-hmm. God's chosen, you know, technically just social, sociologically speaking, there are more people who are out than in, yep, in some absolutely. sort of way, as, as you were saying. Um, I'm trying to get back to whatever the main point of this that I was saying was, um, strategic essentialism is agreeing upon some small area um, temporarily to get rights, essentially. Um, and it doesn't make a ton of sense to just blanket agree across all areas of outsidedness, right? Like that, that's, that's not practical. That's not what, that's not what the term strategic essentialism is about. It might be, you know, an idea. So anyway, whether it's, uh, Gayatri Spivak's idea of strategic essentialism and, and wherever that gets, um, that we are not yet queer, as Dr. Robin Espinoza says, but uh, they go further and say we are not yet even Christian. Mm. That there's that there's some, I don't, I don't know if that gets to performativity or uh, <laughs> not in the gender sense, um, or positionality, mm-hmm. that that we need to continually be or work on or we'll, we'll get to someday. Um and I don't really remember where the rest of that was going. But <laughs> do, you, do you think they have a sense that we will become Christian, or is there the sense that we are not yet and we never will be? Um, I mean, eschatologically, I think there there is, but it's not this, you know, I, I don't think we ever, in their mind, in Dr. Robin's mind, I don't think we will ever uh, achieve it or arrive there pre-end, you know, end time Z. Yeah. So what does it mean to be a Christian? either in their definition or how you interpret it? I, I'm not sure. I think, uh, I don't know what they say, but you could, I think you could probably say, you know, to be in, uh, there, there could be a sense of performativity. Like we, we have not yet actually internalized and understood what it is that Christ has come to do, which is evidenced by the fact that we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is it possible for that to take place outside of community? Because I think community can act like a mirror where we are exposed both to our own brokenness and to our goodness that people help us see all of that within ourselves in a way that we can't parse out on our own and they can remind us of our humanity by seeing their own humanity in its beautiful and its broken ways and they can remind us as we remind them what it is to be in Christ and then in many ways in the way that Scripture says, where two or more are gathered, there also I am present. There is this sense that it is the relationship, that it's not in you and me that God is where two or more are gathered. It's in the in-between. It's the space between the G and the D. It's the space between the two people who are relating. That is the God space. And so we are engaging and bringing to fruition this beautiful spirituality when we are in relationship. 
And I think we can expand that again to say relationship with creation, even relationship within ourselves. But it is the relating as a dynamic action as opposed to this passive, passive condition that we are to be Christian. And I think community in an ecclesial sense, the idea of members of a body coming together, relating as we started in the beginning, having some sense of shared purpose, having a communal commitment, a deep commitment that is grounded in a spiritual truth and reality that transcends our abilities, our capacities, our life, our imagination. And as we lean into that deeper spiritual reality, only together can we truly be engaged in that. Yeah, I'm. I, I think it's it gets really complicated because what you're describing is is. I think we need to be more precise about what community is then. Okay. Because it's not. It's one thing to say we are in relationship with mm-hmm. everything. But that's only a theoretical community then. Sure. Absolutely. Like we are not yet that community. Which is mm-hmm. maybe where that idea was going earlier. Um, hmm. And so. It's kind of hopeful or or hypothetical or only theoretical to say we are this community. Essentially, you, you can only say we should be this community, but there's a very real, like, practical, real reality that we are not that community. Mm-hmm. And so, what do we do with that? I, I mean, this is this is one of my biggest challenges to you in general and how you operate is you, you operate in such big absolutes that kind of are already just by definition, by how you define them, they're already real in some sense. Or never. Possible. Or never real. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was talking with uh, Tyler McCulquin today about like uh, Bart and general uh, general revelation, not relativity. That'll be my talk with Dr. Kaita later. Um, <laughs> Einstein and Bart, the generals. <laughs> the general store. Um, and how Bart kind of... So, uh, I mean, my... my sp- supervisor at the at church was saying like oh yeah bart put a nail in the coffin of general revelation and so it, be, the reason for this is it's idolatry and it, it's bad the idea that god doesn't reveal god's self through nature that right. the central locus of god's revelation has been and always will be christ and, and the the specificity and agency and and the god reaching out to a person yeah uh sense of christ rather than you know this passively universally accessible thing um and at least tyler's understanding and and maybe if mark could be a little bit more generous as an interlocutor um (laughs) like there's an absoluteness like you know one of the things that i do believe is that we don't actually have the the free will to reject the holy spirit as we were saying a couple weeks ago or or 
the fact that Christ did something in incarnating, did something to creation and to humanity in incarnating, you know. So like, this is this is that Calvin thing of like Cal- Calvin says like anyone who is without the Holy Spirit cannot pursue God. I'm like, okay, agreed. But that's impossible. So <laughs> let's actually talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's and that's maybe a little a little harsh, but I I would want to push you and, and draw it out of like what do we do with the fact that you're right like the body is you we are all in relationship with each other inextricably mm-hmm. and that includes and could go as far as create all of creation but what do we do with that because yeah. other than a vague should because we're not there sure and by your own assessment we never will be there yeah it's a good question First of all, a sidebar on free will, an important clarification, in my view, there's no such thing as total free will. Right. You know, this idea of I can do anything. Well, what is anything? Mm -hmm. You know, do I have the free will to have not existed in that last moment when I was just thinking? You know, then you create these paradoxical loops, right? Um, So in that sense, no, not total free will. And so, yeah, I agree with you that we cannot choose to not have the Holy Spirit, that is, or we cannot choose to not be made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Those are not choices that we have. Um, so just a slight clarification on that term, because I know I've talked about free will a lot before, and I think that's probably an important clarification. Uh, so you brought up the idea of Augustinian's notions of positional and performative authority, and I think and it is important to recognize that those are both authority and that there is some essence of tension between the two. That you mm-hmm. can have positional authority and not performative authority or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, for example, someone who is doing the job, the work of the mayor, but was not elected mayor, is kind of acting as the mayor and in, in some ways is the mayor of that city, but in other ways is not. You know? Yeah. Um, I so, was doing as much work as a pastor at UPC, <laughs> but and, I wasn't. And, and people probably saw you as a pastor. which some, is Some maybe. Yeah. And you were in performance, but not in position within the institutional church as it understood the role of pastor, which it maybe needs to liberate. <laughs> but neither here nor there. Um, so in this sense, I do think that we are already the body of Christ. I do not think that is something that we can reject. I think that is defined upon us by God and therefore not within our capacity to choose. Mm -hmm. However, there is an opting into the performative authority. And that is something that is vital for us to be approaching that self-actualization because that is what we are intended for. It's like if you are designed to eat food and you never go eat food, you're always going to be hungry until you die. <laughs> and we, our bodies, in that sense, are designed for food. We're designed for water. Our spirits, our souls, are designed now to be the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. That that has been put upon our design. That has been put upon our essence. And so we are starving. We are thirsting. Even as we retain that spiritual body for the full mint for the fulfillment of that 
bodiness, of that identity, of that self-actualization. And that is something that we will never fully have in the same way that Jesus says, the water that you drink, will, you will become thirsty again. Mm-hmm. But I am the living water. And in, you drink of this and you will never be thirsty. That in our work as the body of Christ, we will never fully attain in a whole sense that fullness of Christ. We will never fully be that. That requires a transcension of our own sinfulness, our imperfection. But it is still in seeking that, that we have the greatest fulfillment that we can have in this life. And I think that is preparing us for our eventual identity um, in the eschaton. So the work of being the church is very much about actualizing our life and our purpose, both for the now and for the, for the then. Love that. Can I poke it? Poke. Poke away. <laughs> um, I feel like you're saying something that... So I, I think you've, uh, you've referenced a number of times this idea that I believe somehow that we can actually achieve perfection. Sure. I want, want to push back on that. I don't think that's what I think. Oh, okay. Um, I actually think that we're... Well, maybe the, the one difference is I, th- I think we do achieve that when we perform it. Um, temporarily, temporarily. Um, but the the way, the place where I want to poke at what I th- just heard you say was, I'm saying we we are that body for mm-hmm. small moments. Mm-hmm. You're saying we are we are looking more like that body for small moments, or we're growing in the performative sense, yeah. yeah. And in the positional sense, we always already are that body, right? Yeah. Uh, the now and not yet. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, very subtle distinctions there. Uh, I would say uh, basically meaningless unless we really want to quibble about some specific things. Um, but y- but if we look more like the body when we perform more like the body, or if we are more like the body when we perform more like the body, then in y- but once we are the body... Uh, this is this is me pushing on the like there's no more to do mm, the mm-hmm. arrival how can how can you be a body if there's no more to do once you have become the body then it's like being a body that is now frozen i don't know if that's a fair no it it's an interesting question and i think this is uh a very specific quibble between you yes, and it I is. that yes, it is, is maybe less relevant for everyone listening that maybe they're interested in hearing. But, you know, the question is, does God have a body? Is God a body? And I would argue that we're not talking about physicality, right? We're talking about spirit. We're talking about beingness. And I would say that the body of Christ is the beingness of Christ. And we, when we reach that point of full actualization, of completion of that identity in the eschaton, the resolve is perfect unity, that the, that the body is restored. And, and we, 
when we think about a body as a human fleshy thing, it's like, well, we're bound by time. We think about the ways that cells fall apart and new cells are created. And there is this dynamic sense that is necessary. But I think that our imaginations have to transcend what we can perceive in this world because we are so bound by the concept of time that, of course, things are changing. Of course, things are dynamic because time is always moving. But if we think about eternity as being outside of time, then our perspective has to change. Our perspective has to shift away from this idea of dynamism to this point of what is pure static goodness, the essence that it that just is. It's isness. It's not doingness. Okay. I was just trying. I mean, yeah, that this is the point at which we both fundamentally disagree, which is fine. Um, and I've I've tried enough. There's nothing I can poke there because it's so self-contained. Um and so I have no more need to poke. I was just interested how you would how you would combine that kind of bodiness and the doingness that is inherent to bodiness as we experience it now. Yeah. To yeah. No, what, I mean it's, it's an interesting question. It being. Um Can we move to what is the role of the body? Because I think if, if we if we take your idea of being the body when we are doing the body mm-hmm. and hold it as relatively equal to my becoming the body when we do the body as opposed to reaching and being the body. It's this approximation, right? Um, That there is still this sense of actualization that is happening as we are living into the bodiness, what it means to be the body of Christ, the performative authority. Now, I think importantly, for many listeners, this is probably already clear. Others are maybe fussing the issue of works-based theology. If we're just doing the body of Christ, why, how is that this, the site of righteousness? Right? And so I think what James, what John, what Jesus, what Paul mm-hmm. all talk about is this intrinsic interconnection between grace through faith and works that, a tree is not a tree because it has fruit. It is not a healthy tree because it has fruit, but it cannot be a healthy tree if it is a fruit tree without having fruit. Mm-hmm. That the fruit is the natural manifestation of the health of the tree. And so the fruit itself is not the aim. And the justice work, the, the worship, all of that is the beautiful manifestation of that goodness, but it is not something that can be categorized outside of the health of that faith. Yeah. That it is the faith that is grounding and foundational and defining of that work, but that work is necessary not as the focal point, the starting point, but as the inherent evidence of the health and the goodness of that faith, of that bodiness. Yep. So, anyway, what what then do we say does the church look like? Because we can look at the universal church on earth and say it is failing in many regards because we can look at how much the world is suffering and how many people are suffering and see that negative fruit and say this is evidence of the lack of faith. This is evidence of the lack of bodiness, of togetherness. But then what does it look like? What, what does the church need to be? A social program? 
like it is in Sweden. But see, then I think we're veering away from that faith idea. And right. and where's the sustainability in that? Where's the identity right. in that? Where's the dependence? In the in the ways and spaces that I have engaged in bodiness, when I have been a participant in a corporate setting of other believers who are leaning into worship, and even, again, talking about Tizé as the motif here, there is no justice happening there, but I think the spirituality of that prayer, of that worship, was driving people towards goodness. It was driving people towards God and right. ultimately would lend itself to that fruit, that it was an important part of that whole body. This is this is interesting. This I feel like you're going towards, and I don't mean to gotcha, but there's a point uh, last year, I think we were talking about prayer, um, oh yeah, I remember. Where that episode, at, yeah. <laughs> at the very end, we kind of toyed with this question of if you if you could only do like social work uh, without any prayer, mm-hmm. or if you could only pray mm-hmm. without being able to do any social work, I landed on the side of only praying, mm-hmm. and I think you were a little surprised by that. Yeah, and I think revisiting that conversation, I would still say land on the side of social work. But it's such a tension because that's that feels like a false split. Well, yeah, it it is because in practice you could always, you know, as we said, you know, you can't you can always pray. Yeah, but I I think that if there were an atheist who were doing God's work of justice and healing in the world, that would be a very incomplete godliness that there is the life of the spirit and and i i you know even as we say atheists it's like what does that even mean about their own spiritual life right like we cannot see into their soul we cannot see the workings the happenings but just for the sake of argument here that they are uh starkly anti not just God, but anti-meaning. <laughs> that yeah, for whatever, which so is they're like, a nihilistic, materialistic sure, atheist. Sure, and, and for whatever reason, they're still drawn to do justice work. Yeah, in maybe, their nihilism. maybe humanist, optimistic nihilism. Sure, Korsgazak style. Sure, uh, doesn't matter. But the thing is, I think that that justice is coming from a place of love. Right. The only way that it's not is if there's some kind of gain that they see on their own end. And arguably, Christians who think that they are getting their good in heaven by <laughs> yeah. doing justice work are actually less godly than atheists who are doing that same work because those atheists do not have this sense of self-gain, yeah. self-promotion. So in that sense, yeah. you know, comparing them to the person who is devout and praying and only praying, I have to think that God at the end is going to be like, I'm lovely that you're praying, but you weren't hearing me. <laughs> you know, it's this idea of What Isaiah do you do 58. with the Teze people? Well, because I don't think they stop there. You know, I, I, uh, Teze is predominantly, profoundly a spiritual place, but they were actually in their origin and creation instrumental in protecting Jewish people during World War II. You know, there, there are... Uh, refugees who come there frequently that they care for and that they're actively invested in this. They do spiritual ministry beyond their Teze community to uplift the spirits of people who are doing justice work. So I don't think even for the people who never leave that community, who never use their hands 
to do justice work, their whole mission and the way that they were organized is still about bringing about that righteousness in the world and that healing. Sure. I just think that's what prayer is. <laughs> well, but if there were a, I, let, let's see this. I do agree. I do agree. And, and that's why it's not actually a prayer. If you're just sitting in a cloister and never is your whole collective doing any kind of engagement in the community. It's not actually prayer. It's not the prayer that God listens to. Right. You know, right. Isaiah it's, 58 says, you're fasting. You're like, why weren't you listening? You know, the people are crying out, God, yeah. why aren't you listening to us in our fasting and our prayer and everything like that? And God's like, is that the fasting that I asked for? Right, right, right. Is right. that the fasting that I would listen to? No, it's to loose the bonds of the oppressed. It's to um, protect the, defend the orphan, the widow, and to, to feed the hungry. That is the fast that I asked for you. That is the prayer. That is the spirituality. And so mm-hmm. um, maybe it's an issue of semantics, right? Of where we're coming from. But I, I really think that the cloistered person who is never engaged in any restoration of the world, any justice work, but is only devout in their concept of prayer is not actually praying in a way that God is listening to. Maybe. I would still push back on that given the the spiritual, like, there's there's stories of saints who, like, pray and then because of the power of their prayers, stuff happens. Like, they don't have to do anything. Yeah, and, and there's actually no part of me that wants to be rigid on that. Like, I fully accept the power of prayer, and there's no part of me, so maybe content, I don't know what you used to call it. Lagging. Dis- disclaimer. There Dis- we go. Yeah. Disclaimer. Uh, I'm not speaking down about the power of prayer. And I think in that, in those examples, I do believe in the miraculous capacity of God to work through our prayers. Um, yeah. But I, I do not think that we can say that our responsibility is not to engage as the hands and feet of Christ in the world, because I think that that is what we are commissioned for. And if we say that God's going to do all the justice work and we just need to sit back and pray, well, let's look at our broken world and say, then why isn't it happening? Right. Are we just not you praying? Are, are we just not praying hard enough? You know, I, I think that we were called, we were commissioned to be love. And that love necessarily looks at the person in need and says, you are my sister. You are my sibling. You are my brother. And I cannot have my needs met as I look at you without your needs met and say this is okay. Yeah. I cannot hold this disparity and say that I'm loving you. Yeah. I think it's neighbor H Richard who says, uh, justice is that which the other would be entitled to if we loved them. Mm. Great quote. Or that which like we owe. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know like the word entitled. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the quote is. He probably didn't. Well, yeah, I think he wrote in English. Um, I, I don't know if this is too sharp of a turn. I really wanted to talk about, I really wanted to talk about, um, Spiritual communities like the Anabaptists or yeah, the Amish yeah, yeah. who have to be almost by definition separatists mm. because of the rigor with which they pursue their stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I took a couple of minutes to like pause and think about some stuff. So maybe we've got some time. Um, like that was a big question that I had coming into this this recording session about community is is this sense of separatism like you you've you've talked very beautifully and uh law <laughs> for a long extensively. time extensively about uh this kind of hypothetical theoretical aspirational body sure. of Christ sure. full creational union um and i i'm very curious about maybe your stuff in intentional community 
you know, not the passive, like, well, you can't help it whether or not, you know, you're, you're part of, mm-hmm. you're part of this world, aren't you? As, uh, Mary would say to Treebeard. Um, <laughs> it affects us all, tree, root, and twig. Um, but what do we do with actual spiritual communities? Uh, or, or like communism and kibbutzova or kibbutzim and things like mm-hmm. that. What do we do with them? How what do we, we think about them? Like how, how, how do we form them in ways that are sustainable yeah. and ethical? And Excellent question. I think that the reality of community coming together with a spiritual aim is demonstrative of people trying to find that actualization that they are following their intuition as it leads them towards spiritual community. And that doesn't mean that what they execute is going to be perfect. But I do think that that is absolutely a start in the right direction. Now, I think there is this idea of shrewdness of a serpent that we need to be aware of some of the pitfalls and failures to learn from examples of communities that have succeeded and failed. So we shouldn't enter in blind. You know, there is an intelligibility to the strategy of how to coexist in intimacy with broken people. I mean, that's what marital counseling is all about. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's not easy. This is a quote that um, I lived in an intentional community for a year in this program called Mission Year, and the program director, Ra Mendoza, frequently came back to this idea that community is hard, but community is good. And I hold on to that. We're not looking for something easy. Yeah, that's how I feel about diversity. <laughs> yeah, the, the Christian walk is not easy. And I think when we think it is easy, we're not doing it right. Yeah. That Yeah. the I've... walk requires us actually giving ourselves to God, giving our lives over to God. And I think that's a paradigm <laughs> that most of us, myself included, yeah. don't even fully understand yet. Yeah. What does that actually mean? And I think that can only take place in community. It, yeah. It's been very hard... Uh, for me to wrap my head around how to like talk about Christianity and like evangelize essentially, mm-hmm. like I I can barely in good conscience evangelize to anyone, even someone who is actively pursuing Christianity in mm-hmm. a similar way that I feel Jesus turned a couple people away. Like, oh absolutely, are you able to give everything to this? Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm not. I'm let me let me lot. bury my dad first. Nope. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's Bonhoeffer. Um, he wrote Cost of Discipleship. Yep. Right. I haven't read all of it, but I think he he quoted. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. Mm. It's been... It's never been tried. No, it, it's been found difficult and left untried mm. is how that goes. Yeah. And that's for the people who even allow themselves to recognize it as difficult. Right. You know, I, I think most of us find comfort behind the veil of it being something easy or we lean or, into the difficulty that we can actually accept or self-improving right i, sure, I had a therapeutic deism yeah kenda uh, creasy dean <laughs> i had a um scientologist once uh talk to me tried to convince me that christianity and scientology are the same thing we're both trying to like become the best versions of ourselves and i'm like <laughs> you know nothing about christianity my dude <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. trying to die over here yeah on a good day yeah yeah, <laughs> exactly. And what is what is dying? Right. You know, I think we have this notion of, in Freudian terms, the ego, which is not a bad thing. It's not egoism, but it's the sense of viewing the world, understanding the world through our own lens. 
And I think there is actively a sense of self-giving to the broader whole mm. that doesn't lose the beauty and uniqueness and diversity of who God made you as an individual to be. Because again, we're holding these things in tension. So much of Christianity is about dialectics. Kagawa says persons, not individuals. Sure. <laughs> I like that. It's a, it's a very important distinction. I and I could explain it sometime. Yeah, yeah. And and in that, the the Christian is the one who says, I have a will, but I will submit my will to the one whose will created everything. Hmm. That as Jesus, being fully God and fully human, still had a human will. If there be any other way, Lord... take this cup from me, mm. yet not my will, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. Jesus struggled with temptation in the wilderness, in having full awareness of what God wanted him to do, but still the temptation to not want to do that because it was hard. Right. And, and beyond hard. I mean, it was terrible. And I don't think that God wants terrible for us. But what we don't realize is what's on the other side of that terrible is, is redemption, is, is full life. And that life doesn't mean and life abundant. That doesn't mean that the path to life is always through terrible, but recognizing in our broken world, the reality is the things that we have told ourselves are good are so often not good. And losing those things that we think are good is actually going to be grasping for what is really good. Yeah. I consider it all garbage. That's yeah. Paul says. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Count it all as loss. Yeah. So, I I mean, this is kind of just my last question, and it's it's similar to what we've talked about. What do we do with the, the impossible task of the rigor mm. with which, you know, we've been talking this entire time and the accessibility and, I don't know, like the, the unachievableness. <laughs> um especially when we're integrated with, you know, we, we need to cut off a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Cut off your hand, poke out your eye, mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, the way to the kingdom of heaven is like a pirate. <laughs> I'm proud of that one. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. This This is This is where I do run back to that phrase, you know, narrow is the path and few are those who, mm -hmm. you know, and by my own standards, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying, but also, you know, what accommodations do I make in coming to Princeton? Yeah. What huge privilege do I wield and not always for the other? Yeah. You know, in, in joining a community like this. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest models, textual models of what Christ empowered and commissioned us to do, I think, and I've probably quoted this many times on this podcast, is in Philippians 2, the poem uh, when Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a lowly servant of one who was enslaved and humbled himself before all and in doing so allowed us all to be lifted up. The way that Jesus washed his feet washed his apostles' feet and said, go and do likewise. That there is a humbling, there is a self-disavowal, there is a giving of power that requires a complete renunciation of that which is of this world. 
the systems of domination, the ideologies that frame some people as in and out, that say this is what it is to be human, this is what it is to be good. We have to renounce all of that. And that is not just a conscious thing. That is an active work on our subconscious, digging into our implicit biases and some of the practical of how it takes place. Because, again, a lot of this conversation, as important as it is, has been theoretical. Mm -hmm. I think that to recognize a social privilege and empowered position that you have, if you are white, if you are male, if you are straight and cis and orstis, if you are able-bodied, if you are wealthy, well, yeah, wealth, but not just in, you know, the Bezos's, but if you are above the person who is homeless, if you're above the person who is unhoused, if you are in a place where you have two coats, if you have two chips, (laughs) if you have two dollars, and there's someone without two dollars, that, that we are required to renounce all of that. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is that true solidarity, and this uh, TA from my Black Radical Tradition class, who is, I'm convinced, an actual genius, Rebecca Wilcox, uh, talked about solidarity as we, we need to reject this idea of Christian victory, <laughs> that, that we think we're all wrapped up in victory, and it's like this world is not going to show us that victory. That if you are in true solidarity with the poor, you are not being victorious. You're not looking like what victory looks like in this world. Mm-hmm. We have to reject all of that. And so some of that will look like suffering as we currently understand it. But I think in solidarity, we can only ever do that in community. You know, the, um, my lovely professor from UW, uh, Vicki Lawson, created this construct of uh, the relational poverty framework that recognizes that poverty is fundamentally an issue of relationship. Because again, if you have need and I have the relationship with you to meet your need, then your need will be met. Yeah, you have what I have. What's mine is yours. And, and that is the basis of the most intimate relationship. You know, there is in marriages oftentimes this sense of like sharing a bank account, right? Or in family, there's not an expectation that your kid is going to pay for the meal that you cook for them. Mm-hmm. That is intimacy. That is relationship. And so... If people persist in poverty, it's because of a lack of relationship, a brokenness in what we could consider the body of Christ, that full, complete network of relationship that says, because again, this world has more than enough. We do have more than enough to meet everyone's needs. And so that is the commission. That is the call. That is the work to be that full body in all of its messiness, in its, in its struggle to find what true intimacy is. I think that is how we find goodness. That is how we find Christ in our midst. Ooh, that is a lot of good things to think about and hopefully to follow up with and do. Mm. Um, and I'm glad we get to do it together. Can't do it alone. True. So, beloved, in the meantime, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace.